Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping in our regular Thursday time slot this week on May 17th. As they say in the business, news happens fast here in Washington, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. And we welcome to our pod table for her debut, Rebecca Adams, healthcare editor at CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. After our news chat, we'll have an interview with Tim Jost, an emeritus professor of law at Washington and Lee University, and one of the closest watchers of all things Affordable Care Act. He'll talk about the state of the law as we get into the 2019 plan year. So first, our news. The biggest news of the week, obviously, is President Trump's drug price blueprint, which he unveiled in a Rose Garden speech last Friday. That was followed with a series of appearances early this week by Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, Medicare and Medicaid Administrator Seema Verma, and Food and Drug Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. I confess I have not been able to keep track of everything everyone said, but if nothing else is clear about this plan, it is clear that the administration is using the bully pulpit to make sure everyone knows just how much they care about getting drug prices down. So this is a 44-page document with lots and lots of ideas. I want to go around the table and have each of you pick what you see as either the most provocative or possibly the most far-reaching proposal in the plan. Joanne, why don't we start with you? Well, I want to quote one of my reporters who looked at that 144-page plan and found out, David Pittman, found out there were 136 question marks. Yes, Larry Levitt did that same thing. (laughs) So, um, you know, there's tons of ideas out there many of which could be quite provocative. Um, we don't know which one. Some of them they can try as a pilot or a demonstration, an experiment. Some um, requires Congress. Some they can do through regulation. The, the one that is provocative that, that Secretary Azar is talking about this week and we've heard him talk about is to, um, I think the correct technical term is mush, um, you know, take uh, the drugs out of one section of Medicare called Part B and move them to another section of Medicare called Part D. The Part D is what we now think of as retail drugs. The Part B, oversimplifying, is what you would like get an infusion in a, in a hospital or a clinic that, that's not that's close enough for the purposes of this conversation. Cancer chemotherapy is a classic oh, I, example I, yeah, of, that's of, of a Part B right. drug. And, and move them into this retail section where those prices are negotiated by the health plans. So it's not the government negotiations, which is what many Democrats have called for, but it is a form of negotiation. Um, you know, there's a million and one, you know, for every of those 136 question mark, there's approximately one million questions about how this would work and what, what does it mean. But that is provocative for this week. Yes. Right. Rebecca. So I agree completely with Joanne. Um, Secretary Azar has highlighted this as the most important or the uh, pharma's worst nightmare. And one he he thinks he can make start happening without Congress, up to an extent. I think he he said at some point, yeah, he said at some point, I can move all the Part B drugs to Part D. And it's like, I don't think that would be a demonstration. He he (laughs) said he can do some of it, but he needs Congress to to change all of it. Yes. And I, I would say, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting because 
as Julie mentioned, as we've all mentioned, there are lots of caveats, um, all the questions. There are lots of maze in this report um, to the extent permissible by law. But I think it's interesting that they're taking a look at this because um, certainly they are taking baby steps in the sense that they're going to do a report first and study the issue. Then they're going to do a demonstration. And then a separate part of this is they want to revive this short-lived program, this demonstration program, where the um, the part of the Part B, the part that doctor provided drugs, the doctor provided drugs, yes. Right. yes, the cancer drugs, the rheumatoid arthritis drugs, all of those. Um, doctors are paid their costs plus a six percent bonus, and so they want to change that a little bit. Um, they want to give doctors a choice about whether they stick with that or whether they shift to a competitive bidding program. That didn't work so well the last time they tried it. Yeah, the, the Obama administration tried to change how yes. they play for part pay for Part B drugs, and Congress had a fit. Democrats well, and, and it wasn't. Republicans. I was yes. about right. to say that. Yes, absolutely. Republicans had a bigger fit, but Democrats had a clearly evident fit. Right. <laughs> and they gave up on it. They yep. decided they couldn't do it because physicians... They, the Obama administration, gave up on it. Yes, right. they did. So Secretary Azar is, is trying to push forward in this. We'll see what happens. I also think um, in the Part D part, the part where there are some negotiations, because insurance companies do negotiate in Part D, um, I think it's interesting that they are talking about giving, giving insurance um, companies some ability to negotiate that they don't have now. For example, perhaps offering coverage of fewer drugs. Instead of having two drugs per class, maybe insurance companies might only have to cover one drug per class. And then there are six areas where there are more restrictions, and Medicare has to cover all or substantially all of the And that's AIDS and I forget AIDS, what else. AIDS, cancer, mental health, all of these areas where patients really have concerns about whether a particular drug will work for them, not just any drug in that category. Right, because this is a trade-off. If you're gonna, you could get a better price if you only have to offer one drug, but if yes. you need something other than that one drug as a patient, you might be in trouble. And exactly. some of these drugs are, are more or less interchangeable for most human beings. But, but not but everyone. Not, but not all drugs. I mean, you, you, in mental health is a really good example of people who um, who may have tried one drug. They, you know, they're similar but not identical, these drugs, and they do work in ways that we don't totally understand yet about personalized medicine and individual biochemistry. A lot stop working, too. I mean, right. these are the HIV-AIDS drugs that, you know, you take for, for so long and then they, they don't work. You need to switch to a different one, so you need coverage of all of them that are out there. So there could be, you know, some kind of tiered coverage, but then what is some of the consumer groups are saying, you know, if you're in a health plan where, you know, a Medicare Advantage plan or a uh, Medicare Part D plan where mm -hmm. you get this is the drug you have to take, and that's not the one that's right for you. You may have already tried and failed. How do you get another drug? What is the what is the appeals process? How onerous is it? How clear is it? Is does it exist at all? I mean, this, Anna, this you know like more about this than I do. A year of my life when they were when they were implementing Medicare Part D. This right. was a huge debate. So, so, Anna, what what do you think is the the most provocative thing in the in the drug plan? Um, well, the two that have been mentioned are really important. I also think the maybe the third piece of this would be um, on the pharmacy benefit manager side, and we heard some talk about looking into this whole rebate system. So, they negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies to bring down their list costs, um, and that's given to them as a the pharmacy benefit managers as a rebate. And what they do with that rebate and after the fact. After rebate. the fact rebate, what they do with it um, is mostly up to them. You know, they they 
do pass some of it on to the patient. They keep a lot of it for administrative fees and different things like that. And so um, I think the, the things that Joanne and Rebecca brought up are maybe further along, at least in the administration's mind. Not, not that they're far along, but mm-hmm. that they maybe can be done a little bit sooner. Um, but there is this push by the Trump administration to look at these rebates, possibly require that they be passed through to the patients rather than letting, say, the pharmacy benefit managers use them for other other things or insurers who also are involved in this process use them to bring down premiums for everybody. But that kind of hits the, the person paying out of pocket for these drugs a little bit harder. Um, and then they've talked about revisiting the safe harbor that um, these rebates enjoy under kickback statute and maybe looking at that. And that would get that could possibly get rid of the rebate system entirely and require these companies using PBMs to negotiate so employers or insurers to pay them up front for what they do. Um, so it would be a different kind of model. Um, and we don't really know where they're headed exactly on Although that yet. As, as both, actually, I think all three, I think both Sec- I think Secretary Azar and, and Commissioner Gottlieb and Administrator Verma all pointed out that under the current system, um, everybody benefits when drug prices go up except the patient. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the you you know when there's a really high list price, the 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 rebate can be negotiated that's higher for for the pharmacy benefit managers, and so everybody's kind of winning there, but the patients paying more and more money. And people trying to track or follow or understand this topic, which is going to be with us for months or years to come, um, you have to listen carefully whether they're talking about bringing down the cost of drugs or bringing down. The, the cost of drugs to patients, because they're not, it sounds like the same thing. It's not. You can make a drug cheaper for me when I go to the drugstore. You can bring down by using rebates or different copays or whatever. You could take a drug um, that's now costing me you know, $50, and you could make it cost me only $20. But what happens to the rest of that money? It, it's Unless you bring down the price of the drug itself, it's just going to show up in other ways, whether it's taxpayers paying for it through Medicare and Medicaid, whether it's showing up in our premiums. You know, Maybe it's fair that we all share it in our premiums, but they're, they're not synonyms. And people need to listen carefully about are we talking about the price of drugs or are we talking about the out-of-pocket costs to patients? So, so And there's one part where you actually could see consumers' costs actually go up a little bit when GDP shift from Part B to Part D. In Part D, patients, once they hit a catastrophic level, they pay 5% of the cost. And so if you're talking about a $160,000 drug, then that can be pretty expensive as opposed to, to Part B. And also different co-pays. I mean, uh, Trisha Newman from... Kaiser Family Foundation actually tweeted about this yesterday and that the, the copay structure, the there is a situation where the cost of the drug might come down, but the patient share could go up just the way the, the copays are structured in Part think, D versus Part I mean, it's going to change a lot. Right. It's right. all really complicated. Yeah. And I think that there are like there are many pieces and some of these have to be done together or you're going to end up with these those unintended consequences. Which like is like that, healthcare's so. middle name. <laughs> complicated. Right. <laughs> unintended consequences. <laughs> Crazy pants. Right. That's, the, that's the other name for the drug system, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, well my provocative uh, proposal is the, the idea that they are studying of requiring drug makers to include the list price of their drug in their advertising, which, I mean... Yeah, maybe not on TV, but maybe in the four-point type. You know, on the when you when you see the the ad in the magazine, and then you turn the page, and there's that whole literally four-point type page of disclaimers. But whatever, you know, the, there's some concern from consumer advocates that having list prices, and you know, we know because we cover this. I mean, there are a lot of 
important breakthrough drugs that people have to be on for, if not forever, at least for some years, that cost dollars $400,000 a year. Um, and there's a concern and, that and people... And going up. Right. But, you know, by next year, we're going to think that's cheap. Yeah. <laughs> but people will see that and think, well... There's no way I could ever afford that. They have no idea whether or not their insurance would cover it or how much their copay would be. But if they were to see that list price, they would just say, yeah, I'm not even going to go to the doctor. And it's also well, people say, what price? I mean, there's so yeah. many prices. You know? And so I think a lot of these things they're putting out there, um, and, and that in, that includes this proposal about the prices and the ads and the and moving things from Part B to Part D. They're, I think they're putting these ideas out there, and then they want to see what pharma comes up with. They're, I think they're... We heard a little bit of this from Secretary Azar yesterday in a speech he gave at AEI where he said, you know, I, pharma should come to us with what classes of drugs that they want to do. And, and pharma should come to us and, you know, talk about maybe like how they could do these list prices. Maybe pharma can do it on their own in their ads and we don't have to make them do it. So if, if pharma can come up with creative ways to do it, then maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some way they could come up with it that doesn't scare So maybe they're the just consumer. trying to scare them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I do think they're trying to get the industry to self-regulate and the yeah. request for information that they put out Monday. There was a lot of that. And you've heard Secretary Azar raise the prospect of shaming publicly these drug companies. Although he doesn't he, like that term. Well, yes. You actually, can imagine a tweet, though. Actually, right? Scott Gottlieb yeah. put it very well. He said, we're not trying to shame anyone. We're just trying to bring more transparency to this process. <laughs> and we should remind people who may have forgotten um, that, you know, that Secretary Azar, his last job was, his last full-time job was as a drug company executive. And we have also speculated in this podcast in prior months as during his nomination process, you know, <clears throat> he has a different job now. And he has different imperatives and he has a different definition of success. And he has a boss, President Trump, who who does want to do something about this. So, you know, on one hand, you know, we've talked sort of a little Nixon to China-ish. We've talked about Scott Gottlieb and, and tobacco, the same thing, that you have a Republican former drug executive who in some ways has possibly does have the freedom to you know, tackle some of these issues. Well, he certainly has the knowledge. Right. And, you know, we, you know, and people, there are people who are critical and skeptical. And it's, there's a lot out. They've at least put a lot on the table to discuss, you know, what it looks like. I don't even know how to track it. I mean, it's like, there's so many ideas and so many timetables and so many scenarios. And, you know, are we going to really know the impact? It's going to be hard to tell. Well, that brings me to my political question for, for, for the group, which is that, do you think in some ways they did this so they can be able to go out and say, look, we're doing all this stuff on drugs. Uh, you know, there's there's already concern among Republicans that healthcare is going to be, Democrats are going to use healthcare as a cudgel to beat them over the head because of the repeal and replace from Democrats last year. Democrats have said they're going to do That's that. That's right. Democrats <laughs> have said they're going to do that. But now Republicans can at least go out and say, look, we're working on drug prices, even if none of this stuff ever happens. I think that's the most important part of this. The Kaiser Family Foundation told me that this happens to be a very high priority for voters. And it reminds me a little bit about what's going on with opioids in Congress as well. Two years ago, we've had this opioids law that passed, and it hasn't had much effect. And now, in another election year, here we are talking about opioids again with this long list of proposals, everything from treatment expansion on the edges to trying to um, move forward on, on pain management plans. And all of that is geared towards allowing candidates to have an answer when voters ask, what are you doing about this? Right. And opioids to date has been bipartisan. I mean, how that 
much. I mean, there's been you know, little skirmishy things here and there in like one debate over the last couple of years. Well, there Basically, was a big, there was obviously a big fight when they were talking about cutting Medicaid. Yes, but the 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 current the, that the the opioid discussion per se has been recently given everything else in this town. It's been extraordinarily really bipartisan. bipartisan. I mean, it's it's pretty much bipartisan. I mean, nobody wants to go home and tell Canada tell you know voters I'm against stopping opioid abuse. So. It's it's one of the few you know reasonably functional in healthcare like or even in anything you know they are working together on opioids. We can debate is it enough? Is it effective enough? Is it the right pro- policy? But it is bipartisan. In drugs, you know, it's interesting because HHS will presumably start the regulatory process. We you know, Speaker Ryan this morning said he did think there would be some action. He was speaking at a legislative conference this morning, and he did say he thought there would be some action on on drugs. And and you know, he, he there's something called the Creates Act on drug prices. Drug prices. Um, Anna probably knows more about the Creates Act than I do, but it basically <laughs> makes it easier for generics to speed up and get to market. Um, Ryan said that that might, you know, that might be coming up, and I don't know exactly how much they have to tweak it to get to the point where they can bring it to the floor. But that there is some that signaled that they want to show they're doing something. Whether they can do, you know, whether the Democrats decide. Some of these ideas, I can see Democrats liking some of them. Well, some of the more well, Democrats' ideas, ideas right? yeah. Um, but it's a different political. I mean, I could even think of who might like them, but whether they're going to come out and work with Republicans between now and November well, on I, what something that's Trump's priority is another question. And out of the gate, I think that the administration lost a little bit um, in the fact that the narrative, whether that this was fair or not, became Trump is abandoned his idea to do Medicare direct negotiation. And so, you know... Uh, they've been out in force, as you mentioned, Julie, um, this week, giving speeches in some places that we didn't expect to, to see them. They showed up and um, the the administration officials. And so I think they're trying to change that narrative. And so today we're focused on the CREATES Act a little bit because the FDA decided um, to make a website where they listed, so name and shame, you know, all the... Um, <laughs> that, that was what Scott Gottlieb was talking about when right. he said we didn't want to shame people, we just want to bring trips. Disclose. Exactly. So they're, so they're talking about these, um, they listed the drug makers um, who have been accused by rivals of holding back samples that are needed to make generic copies of drugs. And so, um, you know, the this is something FDA is doing to try and push industry to act better. The CREATES Act is a piece of legislation. It's bipartisan, but hasn't been able to get through yet that would kind of help that along, basically not That's let... That's because the know. drug industry doesn't like exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, they've said it's going to be um, basically a boon for um, the trial lawyers if that happens. So they were, they've been able to keep it out of, of, le- of any congressional bills so far. Um, it almost made it into the funding bill. Almost. It was very close. Yeah. Um, instead, pharma got dinged some other, some other ways. But, um, but I think that they're, you know, it, it, it's, it's harder to talk about creates act or, you know, that kind of stuff versus Medicare negotiation. And so I think Democrats are still going to hold on to that, the fact that that isn't being done. Um, and they can argue. And that's just it's an easier talking point than a lot of these things. Part B to part D. Like a, that's a it's great gonna... bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, you were about to say something. Well, I was just saying I was just thinking that, you know, 10 percent of the drugs that are taken by Americans account for 72 percent of the cost. And that's the brand name drugs. And and the idea behind what Anna is talking about so well is that, you know, if if generic companies have access to the samples they need to make copies of drugs, then there'll be more generic competition. I just wanted to circle back to your political point earlier. Um, this actually might factor into the New Jersey race, because
because the top company that was listed today <laughs> is Celgene, and the former Celgene CEO is um, Bob Hugan, who um, is running against Bob Menendez. All sorts of healthcare <laughs> political issues there. That's but he might race. Yes, and it it's is. New Jersey. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Well, also on on drugs, but not on this exact thing. Uh, one of the things that wasn't in this proposal, in addition to direct negotiation for Medicare, uh, is what they call reimportation or or buying drugs from from other countries where they have price controls. So Vermont has passed a law allowing the import of drugs from Canada. This is not the first time this has been tried. A number of cities actually tried to do it, and I think a couple of states like 15 years ago. Um, Vermont would need the permission of the federal government. To Department of Health and Human Services to do this, and permission has been denied every time someone has asked. Um, but the question is, will it be different now? I mean, you know, it's been probably 15 years since this was a big issue or since this was a big push. Um, I think when they passed the Affordable Care Act, some of the wind went out of the, the, the importation sales. But now that we've seen drugs become so expensive, um, I, I should mention that every FDA commissioner for like the last six has said it's not safe. You don't know if you do it by mail order. You have no idea where the drugs are really coming from, if they're really coming from Canada or not. But um, There probably could- is a way to have some approved. I mean, if, if you want, if, if it was in your interest, to have it be safe, um, you could probably have designated wholesalers or suppliers or something. I mean, this is not my area of expertise, but just common sense. Like, you just go choose 10 or 20, (laughs) whatever. I mean, it seems we do have FDA um, oversight of um, manufacturing overseas. We don't have a ton of it, but, I mean, I think it's supposed to be understaffed, but... um, we do have overseas FDA inspections. So Canada's not that far from Vermont. So That was kind of why they did it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't, it's, it's, it's partly, they don't like the idea. I mean, that's, yeah. it's not well, just well, safe. I mean, I they, they don't Sanders, think it's yeah. safe, but they yeah. don't like the idea. And, and the, Secretary well, Azar just called it, I think, yesterday, a, a gimmick. Um, it was, you know, negotiation and reimportation are two things he said were gimmicks. And so, you know, wouldn't actually help you. I think he I felt bad for Canada. He called them very nice, but a small neighbor to the north. So they couldn't actually <laughs> help us with our problem. Um, well, there is a concern, I mean, in Canada that there are not there enough. Would, they do not have enough drugs right. to supply the United right. States. Exactly. They might have enough drugs Vermont to supply Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> Fairly healthy. Right. A lot so, of cows. Right. So, so I agree with Joanne. I think there are reason there are ways you could do it and there are there are probably um, a pilot. A pilot. You could do a demonstration. <laughs> um, but well, they. Ha- I mean, they actually have authority. Yeah, was... definitely. But but they. I, I don't see it. I don't see it changing. And we should say that HHS and FDA, a Democratic. I mean, this goes back to the Clinton years. Right. Thing, yeah. The, right. the first the first it's one not, who denied it was Secretary Shalala. Shalala. Right. Yeah. So it's not. It it does take on a partisan tilt at. Often, but it's well, not. it's always it's always been a bipartisan issue on Capitol a, Hill, right? And a bipartisan for bipartisan it, and a bi- to do it, right? Yeah. Bipartisan to do right. it on so Capitol we should, Hill. We should just make it clear it. that the administrations, plural, have not liked it, and um, it keeps bubbling up like things do in Congress and, or now the states. So I would say that I think because the Vermont law is wholesaler to wholesaler, I think Joanne's right that there is a way to do it. But I also believe that you all are correct. I mean, the same, we actually saw importation become law 18 years ago. And with, as with you said, Shalala didn't right. approve it. And I think, you know, given that last year there was a letter from four FDA commissioners saying this is not safe, we're not going to do it. And given what Anna's talked about with the, with the phrasing from um, Alexander Azar, I don't think there's any chance that 
despite Trump's interest in this historically, I don't think there's any chance that HHS will allow this to go forward. So even in Vermont, even even if this this particular idea would likely be safe, I, I would. I think I, I don't. I don't see uh, Secretary Azar going for this. <laughs> I would give my my one caveat maybe um, is that the administration for a little while now has been particularly um, sensitive to shortages. And there, there are some pretty, um, pretty big ones, and, and that maybe something like this could could help. Um, and so, if maybe Vermont were to frame it that way, um, <laughs> <laughs> or to have a certain, tr- I mean, you know, a tiptoe that you're going to yeah, get this drug or that drug, right? Exactly. We'll have to see. All right. Well, moving on. Also on the state front, the abortion wars are heating up in Iowa. Oh, the AC- always they are up. always heating. <laughs> well, no, but even even more now in in Iowa, the ACLU and Planned Parenthood uh, have filed to to block a new law that would ban abortion as soon as a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is around six weeks, well before even most first trimester abortions happen. This would clearly be found unconstitutional under the current Supreme Court. But the groups didn't sue in federal court. They sued in state court, charging that the law violates Iowa's constitution. And the state's attorney general is refusing to defend the law in court because he believes it's unconstitutional. He's a Democrat. Yeah. So, so I mean, obviously, anti-abortion forces are looking for a case to, to get to the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Is it is, is, do you think this is going to be the the type, if not the Iowa law, there are other states sort of looking at at much more limited? Um, I would think the twenty bans? week bans. Pro- I mean, there's a fight going on in the anti-abortion movement over which type of their number. There are many, many, many state restrictions of all sorts of types. The Supreme Court ruled against a bunch of them in the Texas case, which I think was two years ago. Um, these these time limits have. Um, come to state lower courts have ruled against them. Six weeks have ruled have six weeks, twelve weeks have been ruled against. I think fifteen has. Yeah, well, there's two fifteen week have ones. Have they been there's tested a, there's, in court? No, no well, that's I, temporary injunctions. Yeah, I what's think. interesting about the twenty week ones is that I don't think the the abortion rights groups have wanted to sue right, over that they didn't the, in Texas because they're afraid that that would be upheld. Right. So the the twenty week one uh, there there. So as I started to say before, I got myself distracted. Um, there there is a there is a. Um, split within the anti-abortion forces about do you want to really try to ban all abortions, which a six-week law would pretty much do, um, or do you want to take a big step for them? I mean, a 20-week ban would be a big step, and do you want to go for that? I mean, they are assuming that there will be changes on the Supreme Court sometime in the next few years. Um, There are a bunch of, I mean, there are a bunch of elder uh, justices, and and they're quite open talking about we expect some change. so the six-week one would be more radical than the 20-week one, but the 20-week one might be a better case for the people trying to get road changed. Or more likely one of these 15-week ones that, that we're seeing. There's one in Mississippi and, and one, in, that I, one in Louisiana. It's, I think the one of them is waiting for the other, maybe Arkansas. Right. So we don't know that there'll be both a legal and a tactical and a strategic battle over that in the next few years. Uh, but right now, they're sort of created groundwork for everything. Yeah, and, and and so it's yes, you're right. And also, and also on the reproductive health front, um, we talked about this briefly last week. There are now numerous reports that the Trump administration is talking about bringing back a Reagan era rule. This was my first abortion story that would effectively defund Planned Parenthood by preventing recipients of federal family planning money from mentioning abortion as an option for women with unintended pregnancies. Now, in an effort to head it off, more than 200 members of Congress and more than 100 women's health and public health groups are urging. The administration not to do it. On the other side, you have, I think, 85 anti-abortion groups urging the administration to do it. Um, 
are are we sort of back to to this fight over it's it's essentially the fight over planned parenthood i mean it's all about this is the 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 raison d'etre right now for the anti-abortion groups is the one thing they can agree on is let's defund planned parenthood yes i think this is definitely part of that and and part of an interesting battle against birth control as well so i think um the fact that the susan b anthony list asked the trump administration to go forward with this gag rule and that president trump is going to be there at their gala next Next week might suggest that something is in the works. Um, <laughs> or that we would see it around then? <laughs> yes, you would think so. Um, I think that... And the Susan B. Anthony list is now one of the, the sort of prime leading anti-abortion groups. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, so this does go back to Planned Parenthood. I mean, Planned Parenthood, um, they serve about 40% of family planning um, patients. There's a lot of interest among Republicans going back for years in defunding Planned Parenthood that hasn't moved forward in Congress despite many, many, many efforts. Um, So we've seen this continued drumbeat of actions that the administration has taken. Um, Last year, you'll remember that Vice President Pence cast the tie-breaking vote against overturn, well, in order to overturn an Obama administration policy that would have prevented states from um, from defunding Planned Parenthood. So this is just continuing that. And I, I think we'll see further action in this election year. Yeah, I suspect so. All right. One more before we go to our interview. Um, uh A group of Democratic attorneys general are being allowed to intercede in a federal lawsuit brought by a group of Republican attorneys general in Texas. Um, The Republican attorneys general are charging that the congressional repeal of the penalty for not having health insurance has rendered the entire Affordable Care Act unconstitutional because the tax penalty was the only reason the Supreme Court found the law constitutional in the first place in 2012. Uh, The Trump administration never did say whether it would defend the law in court, but now it seems it won't have to. So what we're going to have is state officials versus other state officials. Please, someone tell me we won't be back sitting outside the Supreme Court again <laughs> next year on this thing. That's yeah, that's really tough to say. I mean, it might take two years. <laughs> <laughs> and I, it, it's just, it's interesting. I think we saw a little movement too this week on the CSR case. Um, oh, that's, that's right. right was involved in that too, right? right? Yeah, and so you see the states, I think, taking this bigger role um, because. You know, it was obviously these were Obama policies, but now Trump, they're under Trump. And so it's it's just confusing on who's even defending what anymore. It um, is. I mean, it's just so, but I mean, it's literally, I mean, you have like half the states going up against the other half of the states. Right. And you have activist attorney, state attorneys general. I mean, you have Abbott in in, uh, in, in Texas and, and Becerra, who was a congressman um, who went back to home to California to become the state AG. He's got his name on a lot of these things. They're fighting about. Um, Obamacare subsidies. They're fighting about the mandate. They're fighting about um, birth they're control policy. About, yeah, exactly. um, you know, they're fighting about lots of stuff. And and it is, um, we will have. You know, there will be plenty of lawsuits to talk about. Although it's worth remembering that it was really the state attorneys general that got the tobacco settlement done. So long, long and now it might be them. On, did. Yeah. It might be them who do opioids too. Yeah. I mean that's an right? enormous, that's big, messy. By, that is also bipartisan. I mean the tobacco had uh, red and blue states. We didn't have we didn't call over the red and blue states back then, right. but it had Democratic and Republican uh, states attorney general negotiating on that tobacco settlement twenty years ago, and we do have uh, Democratic and Republican. Um, Attorneys General is dealing with opioid issues uh, mm-hmm. again on a it's a huge complicated it's not just the states it's like 
you know, huge numbers of, of, of cases that are being consolidated. And, but that is, mm-hmm. uh, a, the, that's a different trend where the states are taking the lead there, but it is so far a bipartisan. So, you know, they all like the getting day. money. But also it's the money for a public health, you know, a huge public health problem. Right. And back in the day, John McCain tried to get a bigger law through Congress on tobacco and spent a month trying to debate that in, on the Senate floor and failed, if you remember. Oh, oh do I remember? remember. <laughs> I remember yeah. it was, I, think, I don't think I ever covered a bill that was on the floor that long. It I was know. on the Senate floor. It was. It I was. remember writing a story. It's like, you know, 20 years. I remember writing a story. <laughs> the least was, are we there yet? Right. You know, like, it, like, the, the, it was summer and, you know, it was this really long Senate car trip. Yes, it, that was. It was, all, it was no a, destination. a very long, hot summer. <laughs> so I just wanted to throw in on the Texas case. It's kind of interesting to me. Texas was one of the states that originally sued back in the lawsuit that finally. Right in 2010. Was in, the, yes, the day 2010. the bill was signed. Exactly right. That ended up in 2012. And they have this history of suing over everything from the health insurance tax to contraceptive mandates to all sorts of things. They've sued many times over the health care law. Um, I think that it's interesting. Their argument is interesting that because Congress because Congress zeroed out or eliminated the penalty for the mandate that the entire law is not it cannot be upheld. It's not constitutional. But if you think about it, I mean, first, Congress did not eliminate the mandate. They just reduced the the penalty penalty to to zero. zero. And also, Congress left the rest of the law in place, which means it can be severed, right? Right. Right. That's right. Yeah, this was the big argument about is there a severability clause, which Congress didn't do when they wrote the bill. They purposely didn't do it in 2010. But you're right. They've now they sort of demonstrated that it's severable because they just severed it. Yes. (laughs) Right. And they, you know, they, they left the bill intact, not because they wanted to. The Republicans did not want to. But, right. they, you know, they just they didn't have the vote. Congress to. just left it intact. There's no way you couldn't say that they didn't. It's not what they wanted, but that's what happens. So. But it's keeping lots of these state attorneys general busy. All right, right. Well, I'm sure we will have way more to talk about. But that's as, that's as much time as we have for the news this week. Now we're going to go to the interview I did yesterday with Tim Jost, where he talks about this. Uh, then we will come back and we will do our extra credit. So here's Tim. So we are pleased to welcome to the podcast Timothy Jost. Tim literally wrote the textbook many law students use to study health law. He's an emeritus professor of law at the Washington and Lee University School of Law in Lexington, Virginia. He's also chronicled the travels of the Affordable Care Act from before its passage to where it stands today, which is why I was anxious to have him talk to us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Julie. So if you were grading the ACA for its status as it is today, what kind of grade would you give it? Well, that's a hard question uh, because the ACA isn't the ACA that was adopted uh, back in 2010. Um, I'd say right now uh, probably a C uh, because uh, some parts of it have been spectacularly successful. Um, Many parts of it nobody even knows are there. Um, or have forgotten, like closing the donut hole or allowing approval of biosimilars or lots of provisions for combating fraud and abuse. Um, But uh, the Medicaid expansions have been very successful uh, in states that have expanded Medicaid in terms of expanding access to coverage, expanding access to care, and even we're starting to get some data now on improving outcomes. Um, and the we still have um, over 11 million people who are covered through the marketplaces. Um, and in, in many places, those are functioning fairly well. 
Uh, but we also have some pretty serious problems, uh, particularly for people in the individual market who uh, incomes are too high to get subsidies, uh, who are seeing premiums that keep increasing and um, uh, increasingly are finding coverage unaffordable. Um, and a lot of that has to do with uh, uh, parts of the Affordable Care Act that were never really completely implemented and uh, steps that have been taken by the Trump administration to roll back some of the gains of the Affordable Care Act. Well, let's let's pick that apart a little bit. What, what, what do you think is the thing that's working the best about the health law right now? Well, I think probably the Medicaid expansions. Uh, we'll see what happens now that states are asking for waivers to increase what are effectively paperwork burdens on Medicaid enrollees. You're talking about the work requirements. Yeah, the requirement that, or the, the, the provisions that people can be terminated from their coverage if they don't effectively document that they, <laughs> that they are employed. Um, but, um, but also, uh, you know, some states are imposing premiums or, or, uh, or increased cost sharing, and some states are talking about drug tests. Fortunately, the current administration has turned down the ideal of, uh, the idea of annual limits for Medicaid, which would have been completely antithetical to the nature of the program and disastrous. But, um, but still, I think we're going to see some erosion of the dramatic increases in coverage that we saw through the Medicaid program. But also the exchanges, I think, have been uh, very helpful. I have a, a son who um, just lost his employer coverage uh, and enrolled in the marketplace. It was easy. He found very affordable coverage uh, with very affordable cost sharing. Um, and it was a really good experience. And I'm sure that's true with many, many, many other people as well. Now, you, you may have mentioned this already, but what's what's working least well about this? Is it is it the people who aren't subsidized and can't get they can't pay for their coverage? Yeah, I think that's well that, and then also the people in the states that haven't expended Medicaid that are in the Medicaid gap um, and have no access, and also things like the family glitch, where people who can't afford um, family coverage through their employer are nevertheless just de denied coverage through... Or denied subsidies. Or denied subsidies, rather, thank you, through the exchanges because they, in theory, have employer coverage available. So there are some things. I mean, I think that had the risk corridor program been fully funded, had the funding for that not been cut off, um, had the reinsurance program lasted longer or had the bipartisan compromise to create a reinsurance program passed earlier this year, I think we would have seen some fairly dramatic effects in terms of stabilizing the individual market. Uh, but that didn't happen, and now I think we're moving the other direction with the availability of association health plans and short-term plans. And yeah, and you're sort of anticipating my next question, which is that, you know, we've only seen rate filings from a couple of states so far, but those we've seen, including your home state of Virginia and my home state of Maryland, um, suggest that changes wrought by Congress and the Trump administration are driving up premiums rather dramatically. Is there any chance that these early states are outliers and it really won't be so bad? Well, I mean, uh, I, I just looked at it this morning, and we now have rate filings from four states, and Maryland is the worst, uh, almost a 30% average increase, but Maryland has, uh, has approved a, a reinsurance waiver, 
Uh, and if that's approved by the Trump administration, those rate filing, those rate increases could almost disappear or at least be dramatically reduced. Uh, Virginia averaged about 13.4 percent with some uh, insurers actually requesting decreases. Vermont was 8.5 percent. Oregon was 10.5 percent. And we get six more states with rate filings over the next week and a half. Um, and uh, where insurers have uh, explained publicly why their rates are going up, uh, it's all about the repeal of the individual mandate penalty um, and other uh, initiatives being taken by the Trump administration. So uh, if states can take steps to control short-term plans or association plans or impose their own mandates, as New Jersey has done and Maryland's been talking about, um, we could see uh, markets that were quite stable. Uh, and I would expect in states like California where a lot of things have been done to stabilize the markets that we might see quite small premium increases. The Trump administration says that their, you know, their proposals to, to let more people basically buy short-term plans wouldn't hurt the market because those are going to be largely people who aren't in the exchanges anyway. I take it that's still a, a point of some disagreement. Yes, definitely. And the CMS actuary apparently uh, weighed in either today, yesterday or today. I haven't yet found the report, just Robert Pear's report of it. But um, the CMS actuary has uh, said that uh, the changes, the number of people moving from the uh, ACA-compliant market to the short-term market is going to be much larger than what the Trump administration had uh, said in its in the preamble to the short-term rule proposal, um, and that the costs to the federal government are going to be very substantial. I think it was about $40 billion over 10 years. So, um, and every other, uh, the urban study that was done, um, some other studies that have been done by, by actuaries show uh, a much larger movement to short-term plans um, with subsequent erosion of ACA-compliant coverage and subsequent increases in, in premiums for ACA-compliant coverage because the people who are left behind are not going to be the healthy people. What's the biggest threat to, to the law at this point? Um, well, one of... <laughs> One of the biggest threats, as hard as it is to believe, is that uh, the state of Texas and I think 19 other uh, Republican AGs or governors have filed a lawsuit down in Texas um, in a rural uh, district before an extremely conservative judge uh, claiming that the entire statute is unconstitutional. And uh, That's the, because they repealed the individual yeah, mandate their tax, argument right? is that the Supreme Court held the individual mandate unconstitutional as a mandate, um, and uh, the, the tax has been repealed, which was the reason the Supreme Court upheld it, and therefore the mandate disappears and the entire statute collapses, which is just laughable when you think about, okay, we're going to reopen the, uh, the donut hole because Congress has zeroed out the tax. Um, but it's the one judge in the country who might take the argument seriously. So uh, we might have a surprise there. And frankly, I think that would be a huge shock to the individual insurance market if the judge would grant a preliminary injunction as requested and that we would see premiums soar. Um, but the judge today granted uh, a motion to intervene uh, by 17 Democratic AGs led by uh, the state of California. So... This is starting to look like a, 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 a sumo wrestling match in Wichita Falls, Texas, between um, 
uh, Xavier Becerra and and uh, Paxton, uh, the the uh, Texas AG, and we'll we'll see what happens. So, uh, there's always drama in the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> that, I was just going to say that's the one thing that never seems to change. This is I know I know you have retired from your your very able blogging for health affairs that so many reporters relied on, um, but we are we are glad that you're still around, keeping an eye on all of this. Any anything else you would like to add to uh, to 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 what we should be watching for as these sort of rate filing season continues? Well, I mean, I think that uh, the big question is going to be, number one, what happens with the association health plan rule, which could come down any day now or at least any week now, and uh, and uh, how much draw there is to association health plans, um, and also the short-term rule, and, and uh, when that comes down, whether that's going to be expanded at all or contracted in some way. And I think a very big question is how the states are going to respond. Uh, states have complete regulatory authority over the short-term market and the association health plan market. Uh, and some states are beginning to move on that. I know the NAIC is discussing model legislation. The, the National Association of National Insurance National Association of Insurance Commissioners. I don't know that they're going to do anything. But um, I think that that if states want to stabilize their individual insurance markets, I think they have to look very very hard at that, and also at uh, at at reinsurance waivers, um, at trying to um, uh, set up their own reinsurance programs in Alaska and Minnesota and Oregon. They've been very successful in reducing premiums. So there are things the states can do. Um, and uh, I hope that they will find their way to do them. We'll be watching. Tim Jost, thank you very much. Thank you, Julie. Okay, it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a health story they read recently. They think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you miss one. We will post the link to these stories on the podcast page at KHN. Uh, Joanne, you want to go first this week? Yeah, there's uh, a article in Science Magazine by uh, John Cohen, who's a really fine science writer who's covered, I've read his work over the years on AIDS and you know, Ebola, um, and he has hoping to head off an epidemic. Congo turns to experimental Ebola vaccine. It is a vaccine that did not exist during the really horrible epidemic. Was that two years ago or three years three, ago? Uh, four, actually, it was 2014. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it? It was a while ago. Yeah. This is not a normal, it's not a regular use of this. It's still considered, it's not a regularly approved drug. We we do have evidence that it's safe. It's hard to test this drug when there isn't an epidemic. So basically we have a tool that may be a real life-saving, game-changing tool. Um, There are some reports out of um, Democratic Republic of Congo today. There has been some spread of the epidemic. It's not like an all over the place, but it is it is now in one major city on the on the river on the river. So they do have to. But this gives them a tool. And this piece by John Cohen explains how do you you know, where do you deploy the vaccine? How do you deploy? You don't just vaccinate everybody. You try to create a ring around the infection and you also try to protect the healthcare workers. Rebecca. So I I loved a story in Kaiser Health News. Under Trump proposal, lawful immigrants might be inclined to shun health benefits. This is talking about an issue. There's a rule that the Trump administration is considering. It's at the last stage before it's released. That It's at the Office of Management and Budget, which means that the agencies are now doing interagency review to see if they can go forward on this. And it's a really important overlooked issue because the idea is that people who are lawful residents who have gotten health benefits in the past three years 
might be denied residency or green cards because they've done that. And this is a change, a, a big change, from what we've done in the past and what we've seen in the past. There's this longstanding immigration policy um, called the public charge. And the idea is that you don't want to let in immigrants who are just going to be a drain on the system, uh, and you want people to be self-sufficient. But you're changing this retroactively. I, I did some reporting on this last year, and it was I was constantly asked by people, well, we were talking about how people might shun health benefits, might not go to the doctor for anything. Even if they have an infectious even, disease. Yes, and that can affect public health, right? Um, because they're afraid of losing their immigration benefits. And people would ask me, well, I understand why undocumented people might be concerned, but why would a legal resident care about that? Why would a legal immigrant care about that? And this is one of the reasons why people would care about that, because the rules are changing for people retroactively. And so the idea that somebody might be deported because they got health insurance for their baby is just a really important issue. And I was so glad to see Kaiser Health News do this. Anna. This is a piece in Vox by Dylan Scott. Um, it is the blockbuster fight over this obscure federal program explains America's drug prices. This is the ultimate health wonk article. Um, but it the idea is it looks at this program called 340B. It's, um, it's a program that helps hospitals that take care of a lot of poor people get discounts on their, their drugs. And what the 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 fight he's talking about is this idea that Joanne actually brought up um, over the the price of drugs that is set um, versus you know kind of what patients are are paying or in this case hospitals are paying and and how we need to be careful to keep that in mind um, when we're when we're talking about Trump's whole blueprint and the pharmaceutical company's ability to sort of shift the people's attention to look at things like the PBM rebates I mentioned earlier, and then also this 340B program. Um, which, and it's a huge program. It's a huge program. And that's part of the complaint is that it's gotten too big. Um, but, you know, our, I guess he's sort of asking in this in this piece, and he explains 340B wonderfully. And But he's sort of asking, like, are we sort of paying attention to the wrong things because pharma dangled shiny things over here. And, and so that's what everyone um, is, is focusing on because it's easier to do that policy than it is to make drug makers lower their list prices because no one in this administration at least wants to get involved in price setting or telling companies what to do. I think drug prices are the ultimate place where, where politics and policy intersect, not always in the most useful of ways. Right. Well, consumers are, are not red and blue about wanting to pay more for drugs. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, um, mine is a maybe not happy, but at least hopeful story about the opioid epidemic. It's by my KHN colleague, Sarah Jane Tribble. It's about a program in North Carolina that works to help children born addicted to opioids by treating their moms and helping them with parenting classes. The idea is, as the story's headline says, for the babies of the opioid crisis, the best care may be mom's recovery. So you can read it or have a listen because it was a radio piece, too. And that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Rebecca Adams, D.C. At Anna Edney. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.